I'm Sandy Laycox, Editor-in-Chief of Leaders Edge. In this follow-up to our last political conversation with David Axelrod, Joel Wood, the Council's Senior Vice President of Government Affairs, talks with Republican political consultant Mike Murphy. A vocal Republican against Trump voter, Murphy ponders what's next for the President and the Republican Party, Biden cabinet picks, and much more in this lively exchange. Hello, everybody. I'm Joel Wood, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs at the Council. Uh, I am extremely grateful to be able to uh, share this this podcast with Mike Murphy. Mike is, uh, as I think you know, is uh, one of the most accomplished uh, political strategists ever. The guru to Mitt Romney, the guru to John McCain, run more than 40 successful uh, gubernatorial and, uh, for example, Schwarzenegger uh, and, and senatorial and house races. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but also, um, interestingly, Mike is a open uh, Republican uh, Biden voter. So, Mike, it seems to me that you're sort of like now you're the the dog that caught the car. <laughs> so, as a Republican, just give us the big picture for how you're looking at things and what you're what what you think once. January has come and gone, and we're they're working through a COVID relief package. How are Republicans going to respond? And obviously, we've got Georgia that's still out there. Axelrod tells me that he, uh, with whom you share uh, Hacks on Tap, a podcast right. that I highly recommend to everyone. I don't know whether he's just trying to diminish Republic or Democratic expectations that he just doesn't see much of a scenario for D's there. I'd like your take on that. But just big picture, what's what's on your mind these days? Well, first of all, Joel, it's great to be here with you and uh, and chat a little bit about the crazy casino of politics. Um, well, yeah, it is true. I was a strategic advisor to Republican voters against Trump. We weren't we weren't kind of as uh, uh, flashy as the Lincoln Project, but we focused purely on Trump. We spent about forty million dollars in states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, North Carolina, and Florida. Uh, sorry, uh, Pennsylvania and Florida. We weren't really in North Carolina. And uh, I'm happy he lost. I like to say I'm renting, not buying Democratic for one day. I voted for Joe Biden. I sent him a couple hundred bucks. I was hoping he'd win. Uh, I have my ideological differences with him. I'm still a conservative Republican, but Donald Trump, in my view, was so unfit for office in so many ways that uh, he had to go. Now, that that is a apostate position in the GOP, though I think there is a quiet sigh of relief um, that he's gone. They won't say it publicly because the Republican Party is totally in kind of a Don Knotts type quivering fear of its uh, primary voters. So, but private, I had a Republican congressman, senior member, call me when Biden started rolling out his cabinet and said, you know, I got my, my differences on issues, but it, this is a confident team. I, I, you know, this is nothing to worry about here. Uh, feels better. feels better not to worry, you know. Uh, so I, I think Privately, there's a sigh of relief, and Biden is sending a signal with most of his cabinet uh, that he's kind of doing the more center-left Democrats like he is. You know, he's got a lot of energy on the progressive side, and he's going to have to deal with that. And, we, you know, we, we still haven't heard if Bernie Sanders is going to be our labor secretary. I, I'd like to own the liquor store nearest the Fortune 500 on that day, because uh, I think it's going to be a long day for American business, and it could happen. Because Biden, Biden has some coalition work, he's got to respect the left. But overall, I think that's good. So what are the Repubs doing? Well, right now they're caught in the kabuki theater of the last days of Trump, which on one hand is kind of funny because Trump is totally off the rails, mysterious votes that don't exist, 
I mean, I've been in the election business more than 30 years. There's not a lot of fraud in American elections. This was a legit deal. There's more of an error factor, you know, than there is fraud, intentional fraud. So the president's in a fantasy land. The problem is he's convincing 30 or 40 million Americans that the election is illegitimate, which is no small deal. I mean, that is a real, a real, you know, crime against our democratic values. And it's, it's unthinkably awful. I think we're all a little numb after four years of Trump craziness that that happened. So the, because everybody's obsessed with Georgia, and I'll talk about that for one second in a sec, um, the Republicans who, who don't want to alienate the grassroots that like Trump the most in the party, it's not all the party, but it's a solid two thirds of it. Um, they're, they're kind of putting up with the kabuki theater and the crazy lawsuits and the insane tweets because they don't want anything to go wrong in Georgia because they hate the idea of losing Senate control. Now, the polling in Georgia, both private and public, has shown the Republicans, who I agree with my podcasting partner Axelrod, have started with a little historical advantage there, in decline. Race is too close to call, and Kelly Leffler's in real trouble. Now, two problems with this. One is, can you trust polling anymore, particularly in a runoff and the crazy era we have? But to the extent you look at the quality polling, the Republicans have plenty of reasons to be nervous down there. So I think what sly old Axelrod is doing is the old expectations game, you know, be a miracle, be a sign of divine intervention for the moral, you know, righteousness of the great Democratic Party if they ever win this thing. And the truth is both races are a coin flip with Leffler in a little more trouble and Purdue, the incumbent, you know, not the special election Republican, doing a little better. So I, I think it is unlikely the Democrats win both, but not impossible. I think a split with Leffler losing is definitely possible. And if you look at revert to mean, the Republicans have a slight edge for both. So Republican Senate control more likely than not. Then the question is, as Trump is rolled up in a carpet and pulled out of the White House, or duct taped to a chair, whatever the preferred Secret Service rule book says for crazy ex-presidents on the 20th who won't leave, um, how does the party react? The Democrat theory, which I think has some confirmation bias in it, but uh, they all believe it, is that Trump will be like Napoleon and Elba. He'll be given orders, you know, his loyal troops. So he'll still be president of the Republican Party. I actually don't believe that. I think it could happen. But I'm remember, reminded of Sarah Palin, who for six months ran the Republican Party. And, you know, I joke that now you can get her for $500 to open a car wash. So I, I'm not sure the party will reward failure and crazy. Trump will have a powerful voice, but I'm not sure it'll be the omni voice. Um, I, I think there's an interesting science experiment happening right now. Trump has been tweeting and, and, and verbally attacking the Republican of Georgia, uh, Republican governor, excuse me, of Georgia, Brian Kemp, who Trump supported, by the way. It's kind of a Trumpy candidacy when he ran for not basically blowing up and stealing the election for him. And he's doing the same thing about Governor Doug Ducey, the Republican governor of Arizona. They're both still here. They got nasty tweets. Nobody's talking about primarying them. So I think the Trump tweet laser ray that everybody in the party was so terrified of a year ago may be more bluff than muscle now. We're going to see. That's what this year is going to show us. Does Trump really have the same grip? Or is Trump now America's biggest loser, uh, having had more votes against him than anybody in the history of our country? Uh, will he start to lose that grip? Not only is kind of party regulars like me come back who want that era of losing and crazy and non-conservative activity to be over, but you got the young Trump imitators, the Josh Hollies, the Tom Cottons coming up and Trump's in the way for 2024. 
So more people in the Republican Party either quietly or increasingly, I believe, semi-quietly want Trump to fail than succeed as the president in exile. And then he's got Southern District of New York looking at him on taxes. He's got more bad stuff in his, all the Trump good stuff's in the rearview mirror. And we'll just see how long he can hang on. But right now, most Republicans are still afraid of him. That is a fact. And I'd love to be the moderator at the first Republican uh, <laughs> debate, because the first question you're going to ask is a show of hands on how many of you uh, believe that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. How right. do you right. not raise your hand and win that, that uh, uh, Republican primary? Well, that if you right now, if you don't raise your hands, you lose. But we have you know three years plus between now and the next God help us primaries in politics is an absolute eternity. And a lot will change. New stars will be found. There's a guy named Dan Crenshaw, I'm sure you know, who's going to get famous in the House. He's a superstar. He's a big future thing in the Republican Party. He's been a little Trumpy now. Let's put it this way. He's the Trumpiest honors graduate of the Harvard JFK School I've ever met. And I think he may tilt with the winds a little and get back to who he really is, he's going to be interesting. Uh, some of those young senators, uh, there are governors who are, are uh, so new stars will be created. The, the other problem Trump has, just to get into Republican, you know, internal inside baseball, is the really interesting war between now and that debate in three years is going to be the war between Fox, uh, OANN, America's uh, news network, a competitor to Fox, and Newsmax which in streaming is beating Fox now. They're, they're, they're doing a better job competing in the over, what we call OTT in advertising, basically the non-cable way to get streaming television. And they make Fox look like the Roman Senate. They're unbelievable. So Fox is now in the weird position of having an attack from the right. Trump's gonna pick one of those horses to be for. He's very angry at Fox. Fox will be incentive to create some new stars you know, rather than be pounded on every day by the, by the Trump called on Newsmax or wherever he winds up. So it, it, this, the conservative star making machine, I think, is going to start promoting some new faces. And over three years, if they're good, that could really change the environment in the next primaries. Well, I, I surfed upon, uh, accidentally hit Newsmax um, last week, and uh, I saw one of the panelists predicted that at this moment, Trump has a 40% chance of winning the election. Uh, oh, yeah. No, no. It makes Pravda, again, look like uh, the Wall Street Journal. I mean, it's unbelievable. But there's a market for the crazy. Now, it's a hobbyist market. But in the Republican primary world, you know, you keep shrinking the electorate down. And, you know, there's, I don't know, maybe there'll be a reformation into what I, why I joined the thing. Strong foreign policy back in my day, uh, fight the Soviets free trade, support the Atlantic Alliance, smaller government, actually care about fiscal conservatism, which we've thrown out the window totally in the GOP under Trump. You know, I think some of that stuff will come back. A um, little bit of a pivot here. Um, so a couple of things. You're out and you're in California right now. You're in and your hidden uh, location. <laughs> yep, Los Angeles. LA, hiding out from Trump voters. Um, Luckily, there aren't too many around here. As long as I, as long as I don't head up into the Central Valley into Fresno, I'm I'm doing all right. My my problem here are AOC voters who want to want to immediately seize my car for the People's Revolution because they need good transportation. But so I, I get it from all sides. We do hear from our Fresno friends from time to time as well. They, um, 
So Pelosi, um, right at this moment of this taping, uh, Pelosi has five votes that she can shed on anything. Nine of the members of her caucus um, voted against her uh, the last time out. She's going to have to deal with your fellow Californian, Kevin McCarthy, uh, right. at some level, which he, you know, she made him irrelevant for the last two years. And then the other question I want, the other California question, wonder if you have any insights into Javier Becerra. Um, as the HHS secretary. Um, I, I think that was a little bit of an unusual choice. Um, I mean, I think he checks a bunch of boxes. On the other hand, he was not really known as a significant player on healthcare-related issues to the extent that he made any waves uh, in healthcare was when he, uh, he was trying to appeal to the Progressive Caucus and he, and, he, uh, and he pissed off Nancy Pelosi by saying that she gave in too early on the public option uh, to which she's, you know, had a press conference talking about the tire tracks uh, on her back from Javier Becerra. Uh, that being said, though, he's he's competent. He's 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 taken out after healthcare monopolies, and from a brokerage standpoint, you know, some of our member firms might like to see some of that kind of activity. Mm -hmm. uh, but without having a background in healthcare, what do, what kind of expectations do you have on this? And final uh, health-related issue. Well, not final one, but. Uh, the public option. Biden-Harris ran on it, and with the kind of margins in the Senate, irrespective of those races, uh, can they do it legislatively? Well, that, those are tremendous questions. Uh, what I'll say about uh, Becerra is he is kind of a weird pick for that job, because you would think now in the era of COVID and all the challenges we had or have, it's, it's kind of a technocratic job. There's no Republican or Democratic um, case of COVID, you know, so he's a bit of a partisan slugger. So it felt a little discordant. I thought that's where Biden might make the bipartisan technocrat move and go try to lure a Mitch Daniels or some credible Republican. I mean, Daniels, great governor of Indiana, great OMB director, and he ran big pharmaceutical companies. So, you know, would, would be the kind of super competent bipartisan technocrat signal. But he, he chose not to. Becerra has been a hot political commodity out here for a long time. He was a better than average Paul in Congress. Now he's liberal Democrat. So by better than average, I mean effective at moving their agenda. And then he became attorney general here, which is often a good launching pad to be an activist politician. Kamala Harris did about 11 minutes in that job for that purpose. In fact, the talk here was he was one of the big contenders to get appointed to her seat uh, because California democratic politics is very much about identity now, like most Democratic politics, increasingly Republican politics. So it was like him, Karen Bass, or, or who. Uh, so, you know, I think I would, I would, the balance sheet I might say at HHS is politically effective, knows how to operate in Washington. Progressives will like him. Um, he has a history, particularly on the abortion or choice issue of being very aggressive. Uh, but that'll, that'll galvanize Republicans against him. So, it was weird. I mean, the other great pick, and anybody who's listened to Hacks on Tap knows that I'm a fanboy here, but Gina Raimondo is without question the best Democratic governor in the country. And she's such a technocrat when the computer code didn't work at their, their health system. She wrote it herself. Uh, uh, so I, uh, that would have been the perfect job for her, and I think she had Rhode interest Island in governor. it. Yeah, Rhode Island governor, who's re really impressive. Uh, but the public employee unions don't like her, which may be the kiss of death in national Democratic politics. So I think he's a bit of a subpar choice. And you know, there's also this, this uh, discussion about the defense secretary because they need a waiver to do a general. 
I think he seems to be a pretty good general, so I'm not quite as worked up about that. Then the near attendance stuff at ONB, my view, the Republicans are all over because she has sent mean tweets out about Republicans. Well, one, I, I think we've lost our moral high ground on mean tweets for a while. And two, if they get rid of Nira, they're going to have somebody more lefty. She's a business Democrat. So I, I, would, I wouldn't look that gift horse in the mouth. Uh, and as far as, well, you know, the, a little more on her. I mean, Senator yeah. Cornyn said she was unconfirmable. Um, but you're obviously friends with her. Yeah, I mean, we used to insult each other on Twitter all the time, but we're on the board of the University of Chicago Institute of Politics together. And, you know, I, I, I joked on Hacks on Tap that anytime I've got a bar fight scheduled, I check with her first to make sure she's available. I could use the help. You know, she's tough as nails. And I think some of the apparently snowflake Republicans have their feelings hurt that she said mean things about them on Twitter. But it's unbelievable. My view is, yes, she's a tough Democratic partisan. I'm not crazy about her running OMB, but I know if they take her out, the next choice will be ideologically more progressive and far worse from a free enterprise pro-business point of view. So I, I, I think they picked the wrong person to derail because of their kind of juvenile feelings about something mean she might have said. Well, and uh, she also is capable of saying no, something that I don't think- Right, what you want in an OMB, right? yeah. Totally. And the, the, the hardcore progressives don't like her. So that's a feather in her cap from my conservative point of view. But anyway, to your, to your main question about healthcare legislation, you know, it, we're, it, healthcare in American domestic politics is like jumping into a swimming pool full of razor blades because people don't want changes. They want more for less. So if you're the Democrats trying to, you know, do Hillary care back when, the Republicans can stand outside the pool and push you in and say death panels and the, you know, there's no responsibility in any of this argument. It's all scare stuff. Or when the, in 2018, the Democrats cleaned our clock by saying those mean Republicans want to take away your pre-existing conditions. So the worst thing that can happen to an American politician on healthcare is owning it. And now poor Biden owns it. You know, Trump owned, he didn't know what to do. He didn't have a plan. He just tried to bluff his way through. Meanwhile, as any actuary will tell you, we have the, the trend of people are living longer, consuming more healthcare, particularly at the end of their longer lives, and healthcare costs are going up. Obamacare did a lot for access. More people have it, but didn't do a lot for price controls because the politics of changing the incentives are impossible, nearly. So I think Biden will do what is probably the political path of most likely success and least resistance, which is he'll prop it up with more subsidies and more spending. Because he doesn't, you know, uh, the, I, I was around, I did Mitt Romney's race for governor. So I was around Romney care. And we all knew the two plus two equals four formula was, you've got to spread the cost like any insurance pool among healthy people, because the sick people can't afford to pay for what it costs to be sick. So you had to have a mandate or something to make the numbers work. And you know, that is something the Republican Party is federally been, been pretty much totally again. So it means the only way you, you kind of prop up the increased access is you fight this hard war to control costs. And then you've got all the industries fighting each other, you know, medical devices point at somebody points at some, they all, they all say the other should pay more and you got to inject money into the system. So Biden being a Dem is going to inject money into it, try to prop it up. That's my guess, but I don't see a big, you know, I mean, Biden, to his credit, ran again single payer, and I, I don't see any move in that direction, although there will be noise in Congress about it for sure, because it has support. Well, they can certainly be very creative under the, the law's existing framework and pushing yep. the 
move on it. Uh, Republicans, what was it, 54, 55 times in the House of Representatives that they voted to repeal Obamacare. Your former client, McCain, famously thumbs right. down. Uh, never uh, was there a, you know, Republicans talked about buying across state borders, association health plans, MedMal med reform, but that does not constitute a comprehensive alternative to Obamacare. Right, uh, right. I mean, what we basically say is we'll give you the Alabama formulary in California and cut your costs, you know, but the problem is California is expensive because California is expensive. You know, we, you, we just have a, a different cost base. Now, maybe it ought to be lower. I can argue that. But um, we, we never had a real solution because all the solutions involve political pain. And the, the party on the, that doesn't own the issue wants to criticize. They don't want to solve. Because solving says, okay, we're going to have a tax and doctors are going to get paid less and we're going to pay people to cure you and, you know, blah, blah. And then the Democrats, well, maybe we'll get rid of Med Mal at the huge cost. Oh, not the trial. So it's the toughest issue ever. And I think Biden will try to, Biden's main job, what Biden's going to try to do, I think, because all roads lead to this, is get 200 million vaccines administered by the summer and get the economy going so we have growth in, in the dollars. Because if you look at what this thing, this horrible pandemic is costing us in real dollars, we're, we're fighting World War II cost-wise right now with a massive deficit to begin with. And if we can't get some economic growth to bring in tax revenue, it's gonna compound itself. And you know, luckily we have ridiculously low interest rates, but that can't last forever. So Biden needs a strong economy to pay for anything, including propping up the ACA. Um, just a couple, we've just got a couple more minutes, um, just to, as much as I want to pursue a lot of other things on the healthcare front, uh, down the stretch here, uh, pardons, what, what do you think January? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm worried. I was joking on the, uh, podcast that the pillow guy ought to go rob a bank. Cause you know, if you're a friend of Trump's, it's a good time to do something criminal. Cause you know, the president's really unhappy. We can tell from the pouting and the tweets and the He's not even talking about COVID while we're, well, Americans are dying in the thousands every day. Um, he is, is going to kind of do his revenge on the system. You know, he's going to steal some pens. Uh, he, he's going to act up. And one of the things you got to watch in these circumstances is a lot of bad pardons. And, you know, there's already an investigation going back to, I think, 2015 or 16 about people approaching the Trump administration trying to sell pardons for money. And so, you know, if you take a look at some of Trump's business associates, they would be on the cover of, I could sure use a pardon magazine. So I just, I think, I think this pardon thing could be one last bad stain on the Trump presidency. I'm hoping that cooler heads prevail around him. Even Bill Barr's had enough, you know, which is amazing. But, you know, that, there's not been a lot of that in the Trump era. He tends to either hire drag yes men who are part of the problem on these sort of ethical issues or good people who look the other way out of shame or have left. So I'm just generically worried about bad pardons on the way out. Well, I've got one last question, but before I do that, I wanna thank you for, uh, gosh, this has been now 16 years ago uh, when we had our little in, uh, inquisition by Elliot Spitzer into the insurance brokerage industry and compensation practices, and it spilled over into a political debate in California. And it's the first and only time that I had to uh, uh, get familiar with the halls uh, of uh, the state capitol in Sacramento. And we hired your firm at the time right. Right. Uh, to run that campaign for us to shut down 
uh, a legislative effort um, on fiduciary responsibilities, broker compensation, this whole inquisition. Right. And yeah, they really declared war on the industry. They, you know, they could have wiped out a, a decade worth of California retirement plan gains there. I remember that one. We were proud well, to you work. Guys did a great job for us on that, and we appreciate it. My final question to you, Mike, uh, and I hope we'll have opportunities to do this again, uh, is: You got maybe one more presidential campaign left in you? Well, you know, I'm such an apostate. I, I haven't done like the Lincoln thing and gone and joined the Democratic Party because I'm a conservative. The problem with the left, from my point of view, is they, they mean so well, but a lot of their policies hurt the people they want to help. So. I'm going to fight to the bitter end. The Republican Party is going to get interesting. We, we don't have a president anymore. So for the next four years, it's going to be like the Chinese Civil War in the 20s. You know, there's going to be all these warlords with colorful names and 3,000 troops driving around in ornate uniforms. And I'll be in the middle of all that and fight the good fight there. Uh, and then, you know, I, I do a lot of corporate work now. So basically, I don't want to do the crazy travel of the campaign consultant stuff. So I do that in expenditures. And I work in Hollywood. I've got a pilot about politics we're shooting in January for CBS. Could be on the air if they pick us up at the uh, end of the year and it's set in Congress. And I think people are going to enjoy it a lot if we can get it on television. That sounds awesome. I noticed that you were wearing a fleece with Right to Rise, which was a super PAC that you ran for Jeb Bush and has to be the only pack of any kind to have ever returned millions of dollars of donations at the end of it, correct? Yeah, it's funny, I was on, it's cold here today in California, so I have my fleece on, and a friend who was a, a donor who gave us a bunch of money said, wow, I've never seen a $100 million fleece before. And I said, well, we made these for the staff and we all paid for our own fleeces. But yeah, we, we thanks to Jeb, we had raised a ton of money, but the, the, the country wanted a grievance candidate, and Jeb do his great credit. I mean, our logo right here, Right to Rise, is a hand reaching up. We, we were about a better America through free enterprise for everybody. And they, weren't, they wanted Trump. They wanted to go blow things up, fire Gilbert Godfrey, do The Apprentice in D.C. So it killed us to lose, but we're not ashamed of any of it. And, and because it was a Jeb organization, I had a board of donors. We had all the stuff you should have in Super PACs that a lot of them, frankly, don't do. Uh, we had an independent accounting firm, and uh, at the end, uh, we kept what we called the success fund. If we started winning, we, we'd have the liquidity to roll forward. When that didn't happen in South Carolina, yeah, we sent about 14 million bucks back to our donors. Who I still get letters. They think it was an error. I can't believe it. I've never gotten a, you know, 18 cents on my campaign, whatever it was, back before. But uh, <laughs> we lost, but we ran a tight, a tight ship. Hey, Mike, for all of us. Um, our brokerage members uh, always love hearing from you. We look forward to doing it again. I thank you and I wish for you and your family nothing but a wonderful, safe holiday. Joel, thank you. You're an old friend. It's so great to hear your voice here in the holiday season. And of course, I love talking politics. So this was great. And you all have a fantastic holiday season too. Thanks so much. Hacks on tap, everybody. Pull it up. Thank you. Thank you. See you guys. See you. Take man. care. That was Joel Wood and Mike Murphy. Thanks for listening and check out the rest of our podcasts at leadersedge.com slash magazine slash podcast. <music>